You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. As loud. <laughs> it's really good to be here with you today. If you're visiting with us, especially if you came yesterday for our Easter egg hunt, uh, we're just welcome to Kings. We're so glad you're here. If you're tuning in at home online, we're also glad that you're tuning in with us. And uh, we are wrapping up a series as we get ready for Easter next Sunday. And uh, the whole series has really been about covering what would it look like if everybody in our church did these four things? Could our entire lives look different? So if you missed it, it was in the video, but those things quickly are when you need help, ask. You know, it's amazing since that first message, how many people in some way or another have come up to me and said, man, ever since you said that, I feel like I just got to verbalize, I need help, I need help, someone help. And so we've been able to come alongside a number of families. The next week when Lyndon spoke, did a great job, was when life hurts, cry out, especially cry out to God. And so uh, the, real, the, the meaning of this was when, when I meet with people who are going through a hard situation, maybe somebody's died or, or marriage is going through a hard time or their kids, we often try to push through as if life is normal because we're, we're grieving the fact that life isn't what we wanted it to be or thought it would be. And basically the whole hope of that was just slow down for a minute, embrace the season that you're in, cry out to God, let him minister to you. Someday you will be in a different season, but that day is not today. And so that was the hope of that message. And again, a lot of people responded. We've been able to come alongside a lot of people. Then last week, we're almost to this week. Last week we looked at when you see a need, meet it. And so when you, we talked about Zacchaeus up at a tree, Jesus saw him up at the tree. He said, hey, come on down. We're gonna go to your house and do lunch. And uh, when you see something going on, quit waiting for someone else to fix a problem, step into the pain, you be the solution. So when you see a need, meet it. And that brings us to this week. So I'm just going to tell you where we're going, and then we're going to go over the river and through the woods. In case you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. We'll arrive at our destination. But here it is. If you're going the wrong way, turn around. I don't know about your dads, but my dad, love you dad, in case you're listening later today. My dad did not like to stop and ask for directions. Anybody else have the same problem? So <clears throat> nowadays with our cell phones, our cell phones just rebuke us instead of like actually, have you noticed that how sarcastic your phone seems to sound when, you're, when you've missed your turn? <clears throat> well, when I was a kid, my parents would get these things. And thank you for those who helped me online to find one of these. Uh, I asked for one of these on Facebook this week. Anybody still have one of these? And people started going, what's that? And that's when you know you're officially over 40 is when everybody under 40 goes, what's that? Well, this is called a triptych. Help me out here. Does anybody in here know what a triptych is? Thank you. I am not as crazy as some of y'all made me sound. So a triptych is what we would use when I was a kid to find out how to get from point A to point B. So if you wanted to go to, say, Myrtle Beach and you grew up in Northeast Ohio, or you wanted to go to Disney, you grew up in Northeast Ohio, you would call AAA, they would like basically get a map, the map would highlight for you what road to take to get to your destination, then you would follow it. Well, this is only fine if there's no detours, this is only fine if you don't end up off the road or, or the driving partner doesn't fall asleep. This is only fine if uh, you, know, you don't find yourself needing to get an emergency bathroom trip, not that we ever had to do that with me in the car, uh, whatever it is. And so triptychs were okay, but it was easy to find yourself in the middle of nowhere trying to figure out how to get back to point A and not knowing how. And my dad's theory, I think, he never actually explained it to me, was keep driving, I'll figure it out. Then when he would finally, and it was usually late at night, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, he's tired of listening to my sister whine, not me, because I was perfect, and uh, whatever it was, he'd finally pull over to a gas station, and what would he do? Ask. No, 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 no. He never asked. 
He sent my mom in to ask. Some of you know, you, you had my dad too? And he'd send her in to get a stretch. And the way I interpreted this, dad, I love you. The way I interpreted this from the back seat was his pride doesn't want to let him go ask. So she'd go in and ask and come back and she's giving him the instructions and he's got questions of what the instructions mean. And now a fight's going to break out. He's like, I don't know. You go ask him if you don't. And it's on, right? It's 11 o'clock. Some of you are like, this isn't funny. This was last week on spring break for us. Well, after these things uh, kind of moved along, you know, uh, my father-in-law was amazing. He could tell you anywhere, but he always kept a map in the car. And anytime we'd pull up like on an expressway in like massive traffic, he would literally, um, he, he could just like, hey, grab that map. He'd be sitting there in traffic, figuring out a way around. He'd be going, all right, if we come up here and go over here and then turn left, do this thing. And I'm not sure if we ever save time or not. But we always got to our destination, and it always amazed me. And what amazed me more than anything is that he would sometimes say, hey, can you fold that back up? <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, I, uh, I borrowed this from somebody. I'm sorry for what's about to happen, but I don't know how to fold these things. Well, lastly, we finally all got uh, Magellan's, right, or something along that line. We had one. I don't know where it is anymore because it doesn't work. But they were, some of you are like, what's a Magellan? Well, a Magellan is like, your phone on a screen and you would put it in your car and it would tell you where to go. And then we eventually put them all on our phone, right? And now we got something that looks like this. This goes in your cup holder and it holds your phone. And now it tells you where to go. And again, it's all sarcastic. And the whole point is very simple. Why does it take so much for us to swallow our pride and admit we're going the wrong way? I mean, it's easy to joke about my dad because he's not here. <laughs> but the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. There's something about our pride. There's something about shame that when we are going the wrong way and we know we are going the wrong way, it's really hard for us to stop. And if I could just be honest for a minute, I think part of it is fear of judgment and condemnation, isn't it? If my best friend, if my spouse, if my boss, if my pastor, if my life group leader, if they knew what I was really struggling with, what would they think of me? Right? It's no different than my dad in the car at 10 p.m. He's frustrated. He knows he's going the wrong way. He knows he needs some help. He knows he's got to turn around, and he finally gets up the gumption to do it. What if this was your turnaround moment? That's the whole message, but I want to take you on a journey that I hope will lead us to that place. Whether you've been a believer now for 50 years or whether this is your first time at church in years, let's go on a journey together. Since this coming weekend is Easter weekend, and we're not going to get a chance to celebrate Good Friday, where Jesus would have been crucified on the cross, we're going to jump right into the resurrection next Sunday. Let's go on a journey to the cross a little bit, a little bit this morning. For those of you who don't know, about three, four weeks ago, I was in Israel for the first time ever. I got to see things I'd never seen and make sense of some things that I didn't fully understand. Obviously, if I had hours to just unpack each moment of each day, I could make more sense of it. So there's questions you may have, and I'd recommend you Google them. There's some great resources on the internet about this stuff. It's right there for all to see. But let's start our journey on the night 
of Jesus' arrest. So if you remember, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Jesus goes into the garden, and when he's in the garden, uh, he's kneeling down and he's praying for God to take the cup from him. This is important because what does the cup represent? The cup represents the wrath of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we are told of this analogy of drinking of the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus knows that when he goes to the cross, he is taking the penalty for all of our sin on himself. That's what we just celebrated in communion a moment ago. So now what happens is he's praying in the garden and a a small clan of people show up with some torches. One of the people with him is a guy named Judas. He's one of the 12 disciples to arrest him. And it says that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Well, in the 1970s, so not that long ago, we discovered the location of Caiaphas's house. And people keep asking me, Matt, what was the most powerful thing about your trip to Israel? Hands down this was it. There were a lot of powerful moments. There were a lot of things I saw that I didn't understand. Like, oh, that's what that looks like. But this place, it was life-changing. Let me show it to you real quick. Here is the, now the church. This is a group that we were with, a bunch of pastors and their wives from all across the United States, great men, great women. This church has been built on top of Caiaphas' house. So when you come upon it, it doesn't look like much that is ancient. It looks very modern because it is. Here is an aerial photograph that I borrowed from a YouTube video of the same thing. It was called Voice of Faith Travel or something. I just want to give them credit. Um, I just screenshot this. So here is the picture you just saw. I was standing down here. And uh, you're looking down at the church. So here's the thing. This church has been built on, you can see these, the ruins of, I believe this is the courtyard here, at least the outer courtyard. Here's some old mikvahs. Those are baptistries that the Jewish people would use. And um, you can't really see the other part of the building, but a lot of it is contained within. So you can at least see some of the ancient ruins of what Caiaphas's location and house would have looked like in the day. Now, let me get into my nose for a second here so I don't miss anything. The next picture you're gonna see is some steps where, again, on the back side of the house, on the side of the house, you're coming up here, and there's a little tiny sign right there that you can't read, and it says these steps lead up to, uh, the, the, to the, um, where the prison cells would have been inside Caiaphas's house. So these steps are on the outside, and I'll show you one more set of steps, and I believe we're at the top at this point. That other picture, again, was a picture that I borrowed from the same YouTube video. Um, You can go look that up later if you'd like. These steps, as you can tell, they are closed off so that you can't actually walk down them because down here, the steps have all fallen apart from years of destruction and war and things going on over there, but these particularly five steps are original five steps that we know with certainty Jesus climbed up the night of his arrest. And many of us came down these steps, walked down them, turned around, and came back up. What happened in the house that night is uh, of another story. 
as Jesus was put in chains and led to Caiaphas' house, they're about to hold court to decide if he's guilty or innocent. And so they took him into the house and they began to bring up people who would accuse him. But the problem is these different accusations contradicted each other. One person stands up, he said this. Another person stands up, he said this. But those two accusations didn't stick. And Jesus sat silently. In fact, we're told in the book of Isaiah, that like a sheep before the slaughter, he would be silent. So again, 750 years before Jesus arrived, it was already prophesied that the Messiah would be silent. So while they're accusing him, he could have defended himself like that, but he just kept his mouth shut because if he had defended himself, they might not have been able to crucify him. But finally, they came up with something that stuck. They asked Jesus who he really is. And he gives this, what we think is a mysterious answer. I tell you the truth, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds. And you think to yourself, what is this cloud rider about? Well, if you read your Psalms and you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that this is a prophecy. And who can ride on the clouds but God himself? Jesus' statement to them, while shrouded in Old Testament prophecy, very much proclaimed for them, for those who knew and were trained in the law, exactly what he was saying. So in Matthew 26, 65, it says, then the high priest tore his clothes. We see this throughout the scriptures, that when somebody tears their clothes, it's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of sorrow and grief. Many times in the Old Testament, they would tear their clothes and then throw the dust up on their head as they wept before the Lord, broken for themselves or for the people. The high priest, Caiaphas, believes that he is doing the right thing before God. He is proclaiming, this is evil. This man is claiming to be God himself. No man could claim such a thing. And the reason this is powerful is because I don't know where you come from. You may have thought and been told your whole life, Jesus is a good guy. He's a great moral philosopher, a great moral teacher. You should probably read his teachings, ignore his church, but read his teachings because he says a few really good things. But Jesus never gives us that option. Even though it may be shrouded in Old Testament reference and prophecy, the people who were trained in it knew exactly what he was saying. And he says, he has spoken blasphemy, blasphemy. This is an offense against God himself. This isn't just the high priest, he challenged me. Oh, he challenged them all the time. Like when he does these woes, like woe to you and woe to you and woe to you. And he calls them out and he calls them whitewashed tombs. You guys look like you have it all together on the outside, but inside you're wasting away. Oh, he offended this group on a regular basis. It's no doubt they wanted to arrest him, but could they get something to stick? And now they had it because Jesus claimed to be God himself. And they say, why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you?
And then they stuck him in a jail cell. Now, we don't know that they stuck him in a jail cell. The text itself doesn't say, and then they put him in a jail cell. Instead, in Matthew 27, verse one, it says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So there's a gap in time between what's happening here and leading him away. And if you go inside the church, you'll find this beautiful worship center built around Caiaphas' house. And it looks like this. And here in the back, you see some old stone. And you can see some holes in various places. I only took one angle. I could have showed you lots of them. This, this room, man, it would have been amazing to stop and have a worship service in there. But you'll find in this room is a hole that you can stare down into and it goes all the way to the bottom. And you make your way through some very ornate hallways that clearly the church has built around it. And you finally make your way to some back steps and you weave your way through these back steps until you get down to the bottom where it looks like this. And this is the cistern at the bottom. And I know you can't see everything here, but this is a very small stone-filled room. This is the group, the tour of pastors and their wives that we were with. And here in the corner is the wife of the pastor who was leading our trip, and she's sitting at like a small podium. And she pulls out Psalm 88. I gotta be honest, I, I've read Psalm 88. I just moved on till the next day when it was time for Psalm 89, right? Jesus tells us, and I said this a few weeks ago, Jesus tells us that everything written about him and the history and in the prophets and in the Psalms had to be fulfilled. So we read certain Psalms and we don't understand what's going on, say, by the sons of Korah who wrote the Psalm. We don't understand what's going on in their life. But somehow, when they're writing their Psalm, the Holy Spirit is intersecting their life in such a way that they are being prophetic and they are writing about Jesus himself. So I'm sitting there and she pulls out uh, the Bible and starts to read Psalm 88. I didn't even think to pull out my phone and record the moment because I, I just wanted to take in being in the cell. But my ears started hearing the words. Some of you, I, I see pages flipping. My ears started hearing the words and I was overwhelmed with emotion. Jesus was a master teacher. He had so much of the Bible memorized, perhaps all of it. There were moments, even when he's hanging on the cross, he's quoting portions of psalms and so we picture ourselves in this location jesus kneeling and all i could tell you is it was cold it was i don't say damp it wasn't wet but it had kind of a, a damp dreary feeling these lights are clearly man-made and inserted today this has been opened up to help you see and get the feel for how much light is coming in. There was none of this. It would have been dark. It would have been hard. It would have been cold. Imagine yourself in there for a moment. Let's just read Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. 
day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with the troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your tears and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest When that moment was over, we started singing an old camp song. For those of you who know it, the song is called, I Love You, Lord. I finally was smart enough to pull out my phone. I won't play it for you. Just to let it be a holy moment that happened with that group. But I'm sitting there and I'm picturing my savior kneeling in a dark, cold, hard cell. And it struck me. It struck me because it's easy to live my life and to forget what he did for me. And then to remember that if you know the story, if you don't, I'll tell it to you quickly. Moments before this, Jesus was upstairs and there's a courtyard there's an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard. And we believe that when it said in Matthew that Peter made it into the courtyard, as far in as the courtyard, that he was into the inner courtyard. Most likely the house was constructed in kind of that square shape with the middle being open and that's where the courtyard was. And Peter was there warming himself, trying to understand because remember earlier Jesus had told him before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, not me. No way, Lord. I'm gonna go with you, even to death. And up in that very courtyard, Peter is approached. And somebody says, wait a minute, aren't you one of those guys who was with him? And Peter says, no, 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 that wasn't me. That, you're, you're confusing me for someone else. 
I, I know your accent. You sound like one of those guys that was with him. I'm telling you, I don't know the man. Wait a minute. I know you. And you could picture Peter moving through this courtyard, trying to get away from each conversation, perhaps making his way out to the back side of the room to escape. To where it says, I believe it's in Luke, that the rooster crows and Peter turns to look at the trial because he could see the trial going on and Jesus' eyes look at him and they meet. And Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. He's denied him. When Jesus needed a friend the most, he turned his back on him and ran. Go back and read Psalm 88 later today. And now picture all the language about my closest friends have been separated from me. It brings a whole new meaning, doesn't it? To Jesus in the pit. Surely God had never left him, but he is going through all of this and his sin, not his sin, sorry, the weight of sin, our sin that he's going to carry is going to separate him from God for the first time for all of eternity, even though only briefly because we know that death could not keep him down. He will be cut off. But what happens is the disciples run, except for one, John. He stays at a safe distance with the Marys and others and be able to watch Jesus being crucified. But all the rest of the disciples, except for Judas, who goes to hang himself, they all go to the upper room. They're hiding. They're scared. They don't know where the story is going until the resurrection comes. And when the resurrection comes, the whole story is different because Jesus looks at Peter. And though Peter denied him three times, in John 21, we read that Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And all three times, Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. You know I do. And each time, Jesus says that, Peter, feed my sheep. And the point of the story is that Jesus is restoring Peter. Peter, I know you sinned. I know you denied me. I told you it would happen. And I still love you. So get to the business of doing what I called you to do. You want to know one of the reasons why I believe that Jesus is real and that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead? What would it take to convince Peter, the same Peter who around a campfire on the night of the arrest, deny him three times? In fact, one of those times at least was to a young servant girl. What is a big, strong fisherman doing being afraid of a servant girl? What makes that same man bold enough to publicly proclaim his faith, even when it means getting arrested himself? We're told of this in the book of Acts. Chapter three, Peter and John. John's the one who followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He's the one who's standing there where Jesus looks at him and says, today, uh, my son, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son looking at John, the apostle. And Peter and John are walking. They decide to go to the temple. Let's just go see what God is up to today. And I love the boldness of that. And they come upon a man who is lame. He can't walk. And he's asking for money. And they say, eh, I don't have any money. I'm a poor fisherman who gave up my business to follow Jesus. But I tell you what, I'll give you what I do have. Stand up and walk. And the man immediately gets up, starts jumping around and dancing and praising God. 
And so they and everybody around them go ahead and make their way to the temple that day to worship, and people are asking questions. So Peter and John are just bold. They're just bold, and they just throw it out there. And this is just from Jesus. This is in the name of Jesus. And it's so frustrating to the high priests and the religious teachers. We thought we finally got rid of that name Jesus. But you can't get rid of the name Jesus. Because it's in his name that we find our healing. It's at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's in his name that all other names surrender. How are you going to get rid of that name? I mean, every brand that you love today will one day not exist. I don't know if you're a BMW guy or a Mercedes guy or a Chevy guy or a Jeep guy. I don't know if you're a Prada gal. Whatever it is, the devil wears Prada, so he can't be that. But whatever it is that you're into, that brand won't exist. That name will be gone. You know how I know? Just look at the ruins of every major country in the world. Someday, they all get built on, they all get taken down, they all get destroyed. But there's one name that doesn't, one name. One name under heaven, whereby we must be saved. I showed you the outside of the church, I showed you the inside chapel of the church, and I showed you the pit of the church, but there was one more really powerful place in that church. It's the middle area, a couple steps above the pit, and it looks like this. This is an old prison cell. You can see some holes in the ground where they would have mounted shackles or something to hold prisoners' feet in place, and you can see some holes cut into the rock here where they've put some rope. On the next slide, I have a a zoom-in on the rope itself, and again, I grabbed this from the same website because I didn't take a zoomed-in picture just to show you what it would have looked like. And do you know who we know was held there? Peter and John in Acts chapter three when they were taken also to Caiaphas's house. And I wonder if they stood there with their arms tied up and their feet in shackles. I wonder if they stood there and thought, we are just above where he was. I wonder if in Peter's mind, this is the place. This is the place where I denied him. Was even this a mercy for Peter, for Jesus to say, this is your moment, Peter. You got this this time. You're not gonna deny me. You're gonna hold firm to the faith. Peter and John preached the gospel even in Caiaphas' house. You know what's really interesting? The same Peter who shackled up here, the same Peter is the same one on the night of the arrest when the guards come and Jesus is in the garden. He pulls out his sword because remember, I'm gonna go with you even unto death. And he's like, this is it. It's time to go to war. And he lops off the servant of the high priest's ear. Jesus goes, no, it's Peter, this is not how it's gonna go. Put your sword away. Anybody who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. I never thought of this until Bruce Mayo told me. He said, Matt, think about the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. When Jesus put the high priest's servant in the high priest's presence every day. And every day he's got to look at that ear. And I've joked, I'd have put it on crooked so he knew. See that guy with the backwards ear? Just kidding. 
That's why I'm not Jesus, one of the many reasons. But I want you to hear what Peter says when he's testifying. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Hang on for a second. We hear the word ignorance and we get offended, right? If somebody calls you ignorant, they typically mean it offensively. When I took Taekwondo and Judo, that's right, don't mess with me. Uh, when, I <laughs> when I took Taekwondo and Judo, my, my instructor used to say, Matt, ignorance is curable, stupid is forever. And what he meant was, to be ignorant literally just means you don't know any better. So when you interpret ignorance that way and not as a mocking, attacking term, think about what Peter is saying. He's talking to the people and he's saying, now look, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance. You all didn't know any better when you crucified Jesus. That doesn't mean you're not guilty because of your sin. It just means you didn't know any better. When you didn't believe, when you questioned, when you doubted, you didn't know any better. When your sin overwhelmed you and you were going the wrong way, perhaps you didn't know any better. And neither did your leaders. Think about the mercy of that. These guys are going to arrest him. They're going to beat him. Eventually, they're going to have them flogged. And they're like, they didn't know any better. The grace of the approach is overwhelming to me. And he goes on in verse 18, he says, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that this, that his Messiah would suffer. So now Peter's unpacking. Remember, remember Isaiah 53 and remember Daniel, remember in Genesis and remember all these passages where it told us the Messiah would suffer. Remember, we knew he had to do this. Even though it was your ignorance that led that to happen, still it had to happen. And then he goes on in verse 19, he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent and turn to God. Remember where we started? When you're going the wrong way, turn around. What does it actually mean to repent though? It means two powerful things. We could put all kinds of things on here, but I want you to get these two to take away with you. Number one, it means to agree with God about what is evil and what is good. It's like a mental assent. That's it. It's a mental confirmation. I'm not going to live life my way. I'm not going to do what makes me feel good. I'm not going to believe what I want to believe. God, I'm going to believe what you say is good and what you say is right. Even though I am in a world that tells me and whispers to me and leads me right up to sin all the time, it tells me, you do you. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Doesn't God want everyone to have love? Doesn't God want everyone to have riches? Even if it means being greedy, selfish. And the second thing that it means is this, turn from your evil and do good. So we're going to agree with God about what is evil, but then we're not just going to say, yeah, you're right. We're actually going to turn, go the other direction, get right back on the right track. And then notice that it said this in Acts 3.19, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There is something about sin that stresses all of us out, whether we know it or not. In fact, one test for you might be, is there any area of your life when you go to bed at night, you are overwhelmed. You can't get it off your mind. It's the last thing you think about at night. It's the first thing you think about in the morning. When you're tired, when you're overwhelmed, when you're lonely, when you're bored, whatever it might be, is there a something that you immediately go to and think about and take part in because it's like your coping mechanism for this world? 
You're trying to comfort yourself instead of turning to Jesus himself to comfort you. Because what is going to happen is Satan wants you to believe the lie. That keep doing this because you deserve it. You've worked hard for it. You've earned it. It's yours. It's okay. No one knows. It's in the dark. It's not hurting anybody. Whatever it might be, the lie is trying to tell you. And Jesus is trying to say to you, turn to me and I'll actually give you refreshing. I'll actually take the burden and the pressure and the stress away. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. In fact, this goes all the way back to an Old Testament concept. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3.22, he says, return faithless people and I will cure you of your backsliding. And the Hebrew word shub or shuv for repent is used three times here. Return, faithless, and backsliding. The same Hebrew word is used because it's this analogy that we were once walking with God. We turned away from him. And now God is saying, if you will turn back to me, I will heal you of whatever has come into your life from when you had turned away from me. When we turn away from God and we're going the wrong way, we know it and we feel it. David talks about this. In his psalm of repentance, he talks about his bones were wasting away day and night in agony as he hid from the Lord. Saul knew this, the king before him, because when Saul was not walking with God, he had some sort of spirit that tormented him and he was miserable all the time. You know what this feels like. And in Jeremiah chapter three, the people respond, yes, we will come to you for you are the Lord our God. So what I wanna do right now is I just wanna call you to repent. Let me talk to two groups real quick. Number one, if you're a believer. John the Baptist says, keep with repentance. Like it's not a one-time thing. You don't just one-time repent. Like, there's an old hymn and it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. So the four that courts above. I don't know about you, but I can identify with that song. I don't want to, but sometimes I'm prone to wander. If I don't keep my heart, my mind, and my life focused on Christ and returning to him again, is there anything that you need to turn from and return to Jesus so that he can heal you. You only need a prayer, a moment, a conversation with God that says, God, here I am, I come to you. And then lastly, maybe you've never actually repented in your life. Maybe you've never known that there was a savior who loves you, who wants a relationship with you. You've never known that God longs to set you free from whatever is controlling you. Did you know that this is the Sunday before Easter? There's no better time to respond to God than right now. You know what would be amazing? If in all of our services next Sunday, there's people responding in baptism. There's people giving their lives to Jesus and saying, I wanna walk out of my sin and I'll walk in newness of life with you. I wanna be transformed. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you are ready right now to receive Jesus Christ, if you are ready to be united with him in baptism, I just want you to raise your hand all over this room and I'm gonna ask you, be bold. Be the Peter after the resurrection, not the Peter before. Be bold and just raise your hand right now. And what's gonna happen is we've got some people that are gonna come to you and they're gonna start a conversation. You may have questions, they will answer them. We will follow up. 
But if you have never placed your faith in Jesus publicly, if you've never been united with Christ by immersion into the waters and come out filled with the Holy Spirit with your past washed away, man, why not respond right now? What the rest of us are gonna do is we're gonna sing. We're gonna ask Jesus to come and receive our worship as we renew our hearts and turn to him again. Let's pray. God, I'm gonna make this short and sweet. Receive our praise now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.